As a mother, wife, and divorce attorney for over 15 years, experience has taught me a lot about how to deal with times of uncertainty, transition, and facing opportunities for growth. I'm happy you're joining me for this part of the journey. Mental health issues are an everyday part of our lives. There's something that so many of us struggle with, and whether you've struggled with it personally or you know or love somebody who has, you likely know that there's a lot of shame around the topic of mental health. It's not something that we regularly talk about in our lives together. Ryan Casey Waller is a lawyer, he's a therapist and a pastor, and he's also a writer. He's just written a book about depression and anxiety and all the things we don't want to talk about. And he's here with me today to talk about how having these conversations is actually part of the healing process. We need to shed light on mental health issues. Ryan, thank you so much for coming and being with me today. Thank you for having me. All right. Excited. First of all, what is the name of your book? So you almost had it exactly right and even just describing it. Uh, the title is Depression, Anxiety, and Other Things We Don't Want to Talk About. It comes out January 5th, uh, so just in a few weeks. So I'm excited, and that's exactly what it's about, depression and anxiety, but just the entire topic of, um, you know, what is mental health, what is mental illness, why do we need to talk about these things, how can we talk about them, um, so I come at it from the perspective of not just a therapist, but also as someone who is pastor and is a pastor, but also as a co-sufferer. So um, I make it pretty clear in the book that I'm not only writing about these topics because I've read about them in a book or I've studied them, but I've also very much experienced them as well. So I love that you use the term co-sufferer, and um, I've had an opportunity to read your book, and I'm going to tell you it's incredibly powerful. And you open with your own personal story mm. um, in this process. Uh, what does being a co-sufferer mean to you? Yeah. You know, I wish I could take credit for that um, sort of like tagline, right? But I, I, I would describe myself in many different ways. And the publisher was like, you're a co-sufferer, you know? And it's, it's like, yes, yes, yes. So what it means for me is that, look, I have battled depression and mostly anxiety for probably most of my life. Um, but the reality is I, like so many other people, thought that that's just how I had to exist. And it wasn't until I was in my 30s that I actually finally sought out you know, professional help and got with a therapist and started doing the work. And I realized, oh my goodness, like being nervous all of the time um, doesn't actually have to be a thing. Like, and it's not the case that everybody else is experiencing that. I mean, I think from an early age, I understood that there was something going on inside of me that maybe wasn't going on inside of the heads of my peers. And I thought, well, you know, we're all wired differently. Maybe this is just like my cross to bear, you know? And once I got into therapy and um, once I got into medication, we can talk about medication later and got on the right medication, I realized, oh, oh my goodness, there was just something a little bit out of whack here that I needed some help with. And I can literally sort of like look at my life and look at it before I, I availed myself to the help that's offered in psychotherapy and, and afterwards. And that's not to say that once I got in there in my 30s that everything was, you know, peaches and cream afterwards. As I described in the book, like, um, you know, depression is often recurrent um, chronic uh, disease, which means, you know, we don't ever necessarily get cured from it. But the reality is, 
folks who do seek out help for just kind of your run-of-the-mill depression, if someone seeks out treatment, what we see, according to the data, is a 70 to 80% success rate, which means for 70 to 80% of people who actually seek out treatment, they report a serious and significant drop in symptoms, okay? So like, we don't necessarily get cured, but we often do get better. So what it means for me is I suffer. From these, from these issues. And as I describe in the book, what kind of led me to write this book is I went through a particularly bad period you know, of burnout, which I can, I can get into that if you'd like me to and tell, tell the readers what that looked like a bit. I definitely um, would, would love for you to share that with us. Um, one of the, you know, the title of your book, The Things That We Don't Like to Talk About, um, y- you do discuss in the book how actually talking about this is so incredibly important. Why is it, do you think, that we don't want to talk about it? What is it in our in our world that causes us to want to hide these things about ourselves? Yeah, it's a lot. I mean, one of it is that, like, we live in a society that tries to say, look, we can talk about everything, right? We're in this sort of, like, age of, like, ah, nothing's off limits. Well, yeah, there are some things, and mental health is especially one of them. It's such a highly stigmatized issue, right? So um, I talk about it, you know, in the book, if you were to, you know, break an arm or something like that, um, that would be something that you might, you know, uh, like actually like post to social media, like as it's happening, right? Like here I am in the ER, like waiting or whatever it might be. You would share this sort of like tragedy in your life because... Sign my cast. Sign my cast. (laughs) It's the sign my cast, right? Because not only is it like... There's no shame or judgment involved in, oh my gosh, you broke your arm snow skiing. It's like, oh, okay, people are in on this. But it's also like, it'll actually make you feel better because as you're waiting in there in the ER, maybe after they've given you the pain meds, you will see that your phone is getting lit up with notifications of people commenting or liking or supporting you, which is giving your brain, right, sort of that hit of like dopamine, right, of like, oh, this is exciting. It's a way to even like take your mind off the pain. We share our maladies with other people with physical illnesses. Nobody is showing themselves in their bed, unable to get up and go to the restroom because they're so depressed that going to the restroom feels like climbing Mount Everest, right? It's this notion of this pain, this kind of psychic pain is not the kind that I'm allowed to share because people won't accept it perhaps as easily and or they feel as though if I share this, I'm gonna be labeled and marked as something that is permanent and puts me in a different category. People don't wanna be thought of as mentally ill. And there's all sorts of reasons why, you know, historically it's been highly stigmatized. But what I'm hoping to do, and the reason I'm hoping to have these conversations is because I would love for us to begin to understand and be honest about the fact that this is not a binary issue. It's not as though we have the mentally uh, well and just the mentally unwell, and you're either one or the other. The reality is, is that mental health exists on a continuum. And we all have mental health. You don't get to avoid having mental health. The way we define mental health, right, is the, is the way your thoughts, right, your feelings and your behaviors, right, you know, affect your, your, your actions. We all have mental health. The reality is all of us are either on the spectrum, either closer to being mentally healthy 
or, 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 or mentally unhealthy, and we move back and forth during our life in the same way who can actually claim at any point in their life that they're physically totally healthy, right? It's like, well, you're somewhere on that spectrum. You might be in the best shape of your life, you've got no sort of chronic conditions, you're young, all these sorts of things, um, or you may be older, you may have chronic conditions, you, you may have a, a terminal illness, and so you're, you're other on the other end of the spectrum. That doesn't mean you can't kind of move. And the reality is that's what we do with our, with our mental health. Now that's not to say though that mental illness doesn't exist. So, so for instance, a person that is suffering from a, a serious um, psychiatric disorder, say like you know schizophrenia, they might have delusions of, of reference where you know every TV show they watch, every conversation they have with someone, every ad that they see on Facebook, every billboard they see, you know when they're driving down the freeway, somehow is about them, right? And they believe this, and it makes them more paranoid, and 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 they're they're terrified, or or they're involved in some scheme, right? That's a real thing that could be going on with someone that's suffering from schizophrenia. That a person who's got generalized anxiety disorder that simply is right is wound up and is nervous about the day they're not going to experience those kinds of those kinds of thoughts probably so there's a distinction there and it's important to make that distinction so i'm not i'm not wiping out right the difference between being mentally unwell and being mentally well there is a distinction and they're treated differently but the reality is these are not frozen concrete states of being that we've often so thought of them as which is to come back to your question why don't we want to talk about these things because we still have this general perception that that's what they are and if I come out and I express I'm going through a depressive episode right or maybe even I, I have a diagnosis of schizophrenia then people are gonna put me in a box and leave me there and and, and the reality is and we've got good data is that that's probably not going to be an advantageous box for you to be in, right? right? Well, in fact, one of the things you address in the book are some of the myths and misunderstandings that people have about mental illness. For example, somebody who's struggling with mental illness um, is going to be more violent. Oh, yeah. And, um, that's a big one. And I really appreciate kind of the description that you you use in the book in, in talking about um, the varying degrees and the continuum of mental health. What do you think is a real contributing factor to mental health, uh, to somebody who, who has mental health in yeah. their life? Yeah. So the way that we tend to, to look at it nowadays, and I think probably the best way, at least right now, maybe in 100 years it'll be different, is we approach mental health and we, and we, we look at a person, right? Because that's what we're talking about here is people. And if we're experiencing some kind of symptoms, um, we want to ask to what degree is this uh, you know, biological, right? And to what degree is this psychological? And to what degree are socioeconomic factors in play here, right? So often the, is the case that if someone's suffering from a mental health condition, there might be a, a biological aspect to this, right? So genetics are, can, can be at play. And oftentimes we can remedy the situation or we can reduce the symptoms dramatically with psychotropic medication, be it antidepressants or mood stabilizers or, stabilizers or, or whatever it might be, which uh, are best prescribed from psychiatrists, if we can get that. So we, we address the, the, the biology. Do we need medication here to maybe rebalance some chemistry in the brain? 
Often alongside of that, though, is we fail to consider the rest of the biological aspect there, right? What we eat, how we eat it, what we, uh, how much we move, how much we don't move, our, our patterns of sleep, all the other ways that we take care of our body absolutely dramatically affect um, the processes of our brain and we cannot you know, pull those apart. So we've got to look at it you know, from a biological perspective. But then also, it's the psychological perspective. What kind of stories you know, are we telling ourselves, right? So what, what, what it is, what do we believe Right? This matters immensely for the stories we tell about ourselves and the, and the possibilities you know, that we have for ourselves. And so part of you know, a, the big part of talk therapy is allowing someone to actually externalize what's going on internally with their thought processes of figuring out how, do, how is it that I, that I see myself? What is it that I believe is possible? What's impossible? Right? How am I processing or not processing the trauma right, that I've been through? So we get into these thinking patterns. We have healthy thinking patterns, we have unhealthy thinking patterns. And what we're learning and what we understand is that the human mind and the brain is far more elastic than we ever believed that it was. So as deeply entrenched as particular thought patterns can get with people, almost nobody's beyond the pale. We can, we can move and we can shape and we can begin to think and believe new things about ourselves, which opens up new possibilities. I had a complete aha moment when I was reading the book. And, and um, you say something in there to the effect that, you know, it's not just what happens in our lives that determines whether or not, you know, we're going to be healthy, but it's how we think about what happens. So you can have two people who experience the same traumatic event. Um, but simply by the way of how they're thinking about it, they create completely different stories. Completely different stories. And, and, and one of the stories can be really healthy and can lead to transformation and growth. And the other one can you know, lead to deterioration, I imagine, is what we see. Yeah, that's exactly right. So we all kind of live our lives and we think, oh, my goodness, you know, we're shaped by what happens to us. And that's what you know, Freud brought that out and, you know, and said, you know, this is it. And so you're basically kind of like predetermined. Whatever happens to you early on is going to shape... Um, the rest of your life. Well, he wasn't quite right about that. It, it, it's more, yes, what happens to a person is significant, but it's what we believe about the event that's far more significant in terms of the outcome of our life. So a guy named Albert Ellis, who is a really, really famous therapist, he said, look, this is the ABC of thinking. So in everybody's life, we have what's called the activating event. So that, that's the thing that happens. That's the car crash. That's the end of the relationship. That's the drinking too much, whatever it is. And then we look at that A and we say, okay, that A determines the C, right, the consequence. So now I'm depressed because the relationship ended or I'm afraid to drive because of the car accident or I'm an alcoholic or whatever that is. But the reality is we're skipping the B. The B is what you believe about that event which is going to determine the consequence, right? So if the A happens, the relationship ends, and the consequence is that, well, I'm never going to be in another relationship because I'm damaged. Well, why is that the case? Because the person broke up with you or because you B, believe that you're unworthy of love? It's the B, right? Or whatever exactly. that is that's going to determine the consequence, <laughs> right? So what's hopeful about this yeah. is when you look at your C's, and we think, oh, life is a disaster or whatever, you know, whatever it might be, whatever tragedy has befallen me is now putting me in this outcome. It's like, no, 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 no. We can do nothing about A. That, that, that's in the past. That happened. But B is fair game. I love what you're talking about because I know in my practice, and you and I have discussed this, um, 
you know, I, I work with people who are going through a divorce and that is a triggering event. That's a definite A and people have all kinds of beliefs around that. Um, and one of the things I love seeing in my clients is that is as they go work through that and begin to change their beliefs, and I'm just an observer in this, but you know, they get to reshape that next chapter. Yeah. And so many people go on to have an amazing life after a divorce, even Absolutely. though initially they didn't know that that was possible. Yeah, yeah. And that makes total sense. Yeah. I love that. Humans are infinitely resilient. And I talk about this a bit in, in the book, you know, this term resilience, we often, uh, when we think about the word resilient, what comes to mind for me are people who accomplish extraordinary things, right? So I think about like Tom Brady, he's like in his 40s and he's still like winning like Super Bowls, right? Or you think about people who overcome um, a, a great illness or, or whatever it might be or survive some sort of catastrophic event and then go on to like make the world a better place. And we think, oh, those people are the resilient people and there's something like special about them. When in all reality, human beings are all resilient far more resilient than we realize we are. And we know this because when you look at like society in a collective like respect, how do we respond for the most part to great tragedy? Well, we do it most of the time by coming together, by helping one another, and by rebuilding. So you look, the towers fall down on 9-11. What happens is everyone just sort of go into like panic and we just, you know, desert. no, 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 no. People lick their wounds, they, we take a moment, we come back together, we rebuild, we move forward. I mean, even think about right now what we're going through. Think about how highly adaptable human beings are showing themselves to be in the face of a global pandemic, right? What at first seems like I was just gonna destroy, no, people find new ways, we innovate, we're all resilient. And so what we know though, is that human beings who practice resilience become more resilient. And so what that requires, though, is a belief about themselves that they can survive, that they can adapt, that the A is never going to be the thing that determines the C, that you've always got the B to play with. And so if you believe that you are sort of infinitely capable of returning, right, of, 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 of looking at a problem in a new way, if you've, you've got this quality in you, which you do, and if you feel like you don't, you can look out into the world and see how many other humans are able to do it, right? Hopefully that kind of encourages you. Now, here's the thing. When a person on our continuum of if mental, mentally healthy is over here and, and mentally, uh, mentally ill is over here, when we're further on the spectrum towards mental illness, our ability to be resilient is vastly diminished. And so this is where mental illness can be so difficult because people often want to say to like a depressed person if they don't really understand, they want to say, well, I don't understand. Like, why can't you just sort of like get it together, right? Especially when from the outside looking in, there is no like major A activating event, right? So, you know, the family is fine. You've got a good job, right? You live in a, whatever it is, like, what's the deal? You have to understand when a person is locked in a depressive episode or, or, or suffering, in their mind, the possibilities of health are not there. That's one of the greatest dangers and just horrible aspects of depression is that when the suffering is intense, it feels as though the suffering is never, ever going to end. And so the pain 
there's no way for the pain to be removed. And this is often, or this is why I think right now, a lot of people in this pandemic are experiencing some of the pain that those of us who suffer from our mental health experience, because there's this question of when is this going to end? And nobody can tell you. Now, hopefully in the past few weeks, maybe we're, we're beginning to see some light at the end of the tunnel. But if you think back on the past year, part of the difficulty of this is if someone would have just said, well, look, everyone just hold on, right? If we can get to February of 2021, like it'll be over. But when, when the question is, is answered with, well, we don't know, it feels well then like it's never going to end and the human mind struggles with that. And so that's one of the big differences between you know physical illness where the doctor can say, okay, here's the diagnosis, here's the prognosis, you do X, Y, and Z, kind of give you a rough timeline, you know, you should be somewhere. We can endure that kind of pain. When the issue is, I don't know, we're gonna have to keep working on this, you know, something could take time, it, it's far scarier, right? And so, um, <laughs> Something um, that I find uh, helpful in thinking about this is if you're, if the person is really, really struggling with resiliency, right, and they're really, really down and feeling like they can't come back, something that I have found um, incredibly powerful in my own life is in the Jewish tradition, they, they believe in Judaism that there's only one unforgivable sin, and that's the sin of despair. And I find that so powerful because that is to say to despair is to just to, is to give up hope, right. right? Which is in effect to cut off the ability um, for God to work, right? right? To, to look at a situation and say, I know that there can be no other possibilities and thus I'll, 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 I'll give into that, to that pain. And what I don't want here, to, I don't want people to hear me saying that like, hold on, God's going to come in and magically like, fix you or, or cure you. And we, we can talk about that. But what I'm saying is so powerful in that bit of wisdom is that none of us actually know what's going to happen, right? It's you, true. You don't know. No. Like we even think in, in, in a few minutes from now, you and I will still be here talking. We don't, we don't know that, right? So to try and predict the future um, and to say that, that it's all, that it's all over is to, is in an essence, what I think the Jewish tradition is getting at there is to sort of take on the role of God. And so there's, it takes great humility to adopt that mindset of, you know, I'm going to hold on to hope and I'm going to choose to believe that I can be resilient because I, because I simply don't, I simply don't know. I, I think that's amazing. And I love holding on to hope. I mean, it's such an important message in this time right now and really in, in any time, and especially when you're facing difficult circumstances. I know one of the things that I've misunderstood about depression is the sense that, you know, I mean, you feel like you don't want to get out of bed. Well, just get out of bed. You know, you feel like you don't want to go to work or be productive today. Well, come on, snap out of it. It's this idea that you can just snap out of it. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things that your book does a good job of is really helping understand that, you know, when you're, when you're in the midst of depression, it, you don't have the control system there to just snap out of it. It's yeah. not, it's not something to just snap out of. No, it's not. And it's a really important point because we invalidate our pain and we invalidate the seriousness of this conditions when we believe that we can just snap out of it. We don't ask anyone to just snap out of diabetes. We don't ask anyone to snap out of a broken arm. We don't ask anyone to snap out of any other physical illness. 
What we ask them to do is open themselves to the proper treatment and to be kind to themselves <laughs> and allow themselves the reality of what is happening. That's the first step. And that's, that's why these conversations are so important. There are so many people who believe, right? What I got to do is shove this down and I got to get a grip. And this is all about my own willpower and I'll will myself, right, to get through this. And what we know is um, most of the time that doesn't work, right? And the numbers are, are getting worse, right? Where, you know, when one in four Americans experiences a mental health condition every year, right? Uh, what we know about that, so at least one out of every four people, that's probably dramatically being underreported. It's probably closer to two out of four, and who knows where we're at now, you know, given, given the, the world circumstances that we've been in, given the financial strains and the health, you know, worries, you know, all of it for people. But there is no necessarily snapping out of it. What would be a far more productive conversation for people to have in their head, which is what I'm hoping um, to foster is, hey, I think something might, might be going on here that's actually uh, a common human experience for which there is professional help for, right? So maybe um, I should call someone or, 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 or maybe like I would any other um, significant event, express this to the loved ones in my life and get, and get their feedback. What I, can, what I can promise people is sort of like pretending we're not depressed or denying that we're depressed is a really, really fantastic way to make sure we're depressed tomorrow. <laughs> Well, I mean, what comes to my mind, too, as you're talking about this is sort of the dynamic of shame, right? Is mm -hmm. that sense that, well, I should just be able to snap out of this. I can't snap out of it. Now I feel worse about myself. And shame makes us want to isolate. It, it makes us want to hide. And you are talking in your book about how isolation is the exact opposite of what we need to be doing. We need to be belonging. We need to be, you know, working with other people. Um, talk a little bit about how important community is oh, to huge. healing uh, mental health issues. I, I say in the book, you know, I remind us that in, in the Bible, there's one thing we're told is not good, right? God creates the fish, the fish are good, right? The trees are good. Uh, everything is good. Well, one thing's not good, that the man is alone, right? right. And that's Eve, right? And we get this picture, it's so interesting that we, we understand now, both from a sociological perspective and a psychological perspective, how much better human beings do when we're together. It's fascinating to me that thousands and thousands of years ago, you know, a little tribe of Israel also know, knew this truth, right? That humans are designed to be together in this world. An addiction psychiatrist told me once, he said, when I have people, even people who are really, really suffering in the throes of the, like life or death situations, he said, if I can get them plugged into a meaningful community, half the battle is won. And I was floored. So here's, here's a guy who's got every sort of resource available to him, an expert of experts. And I'm like, you're telling me that like half the battle is won if you can just find your patient a friend? And he's like, that's exactly what I'm telling you. Wow. Right? <laughs> and so what's wild about it too is that depression often tells us to do the exact opposite of what is most healthy for us. And this is the power of this disease. We need to go out and connect with other human beings and let them hold space for us. And when we're depressed, right, for many people, 
what our brain tells us to do is no, nobody wants to hear about it. You're pathetic. You're a failure. You don't even deserve to have anyone listen to you. Don't go waste anybody else's time. Other people have more serious issues than you do. Just stay right exactly where you are because <laughs> you're not worth it. And oftentimes that's what happens. I say in the book that I'm a therapist myself and sometimes I find myself resisting even going to therapy or the support groups you know, that I go to. And it's that same workings of like, you know, I don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. People who suffer from depression, there is all, all, a lot of shame sometimes, not just because of the societal perspective that we've talked about earlier, but it's an illness that tells us that it's our fault that we have this too, that we've done something, right, to cause this, you know, in our own lives. And so we've feel a great deal of shame about that, that it's not just sort of an inherited thing or that we went through a difficult life circumstance or whatever it might be, but it's like that we're fundamentally kind of like bad people. And that's the difference between shame and guilt, right? Where guilt can be like a healthy thing, you know, maybe I wrong you in a particular way, I hurt you and I feel badly about that. Well, guilt helps me because it tells me, you know, you should go to Jennifer and you should like apologize to her and try to reconcile the relationship and, and, and then that's a better outcome. Shame says you wrong Jennifer. You didn't do something wrong. You are wrong, right? Guilt is like you did something bad. Maybe you can correct it. Shame is you are bad. I always use the analogy that um, I, I think of guilt as like the stench that it's time to take out the trash, right? Yeah, you need to good. do something. Shame is you are trash. You are trash. The belief that you are trash. Yeah, you are trash. And that's so often the narrative that goes on in a person's mind that's suffering is that literally we don't have value, mm -hmm. right? That my life isn't worth anything because if I don't even feel that way about myself, then I can't conceive of how someone else would feel that way about me. You do a really good job, like you are right now, um, kind of exploring the lies that are mm. part of our common human experience right now. Yeah. And, you know, the lies that have to do with our self-worth and our self-value. Um, and it was funny because when I was reading that, I was like, oh, my gosh, I, I know these lies. Yeah. And, and I think depression is really succumbing to the lies and where um, maybe they, they, you know, you, you're not able to think yourself out of it. Yeah, I mean, you can't. It really, those lies are your truth that you're living. Yeah. Oh, I like that. Those lies are your truth that you're living. And that's where you often can't think yourself out of it because it's, sort of it's a thinking thing, right? Yeah. And that's where it can become so helpful, even if it's not with a, a therapist. That's why friendships or support groups are so good because you can take what you're thinking on the inside and put it out there and allow for someone maybe to reflect back to you what it is that you're actually thinking so you can hear it. <laughs> because when we hear it from somebody else, we can recognize it for the lie that it is. I mean, when somebody else tells me, you know, when, when you sit here and tell me that you struggle with these things, I look at you and go, Ryan, you're amazing. How could you think those things about you? Yeah. You know, but when it's our own inner voice, it's really hard to overcome that. It's really hard to overcome it. And that's part of the reason I wanted to talk about, you know, my own depression, my own instances of drinking too much alcohol, my own anxiety, all of that, because it's so easy, especially in, in today's age, to kind of write something or come out here and talk when like, you're seeing me today, well, things are pretty good today, right? But, but like, the reality is like, 
I've been through stuff. You know what I mean? <laughs> you have. And you share that so openly and so honestly in the book. And I I really appreciate you opening that part of your life because you you had risen to a level. Um, you were highly respected and highly thought of and, and are in different ways now. But you had a fall from grace. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. That yeah. was public. <laughs> yeah, it was public. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I tell the story. I start in the... In the beginning of the book of coming to to church to preach and you know intoxicated you know and and what that led to you know in terms of, of healing but i was in such a, a bad place in, in my life and um where i wasn't handling my own depression and anxiety in the healthiest ways and was using alcohol as sort of a primary you know coping mechanism which is never a, you know a good thing um and so, yeah, I did. And ultimately, you know, resigned from the church and kind of went, you know, on my own path of healing. And there was a part of me that resisted wanting to even talk about that, you know, in the, in the book. Because I could certainly sort of stand up on credentialing and say, like, you know, here, here's, 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 you know, you should examine your own relationship with alcohol or whatever, <laughs> whatever it might be. But here's the thing about vulnerability. And, um, and, and I do appreciate... Um, I'm not saying, you, you know, for lack of a better phrase, you don't have to go and pull down your pants in front of everybody all, 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 all the time, right? But when we actually share our stories with other people, as honestly as we can or, or as appropriate, what that does is it allows for attachment to occur. So if I'm vulnerable with you, or I write about this in a way, you know, in, in the book, and I, and I put it out there. And if someone responds to that with, with kindness or accepts, you know, holds that space for me, what that does is it shows me that there are safe places and I can connect with a person and then I grow in my strength to face this world. Right? And so the value of actually telling your story, be it in, with French, in friendship or support group or therapist, is you're giving another person the opportunity to hold you or to hurt you. The, the risk always is that someone will hurt you. Right, right. But the reality is it's the only path toward intimacy. And when we feel that intimacy, that sense of connection, then we know what God said in Genesis is true. The only thing that's not good is that we're alone. And so when we feel like we're not alone, then we're able to go and face whatever we need to face. And so I thought that if I shared some of my own personal struggles, I might encourage other people to do the same in whatever way they need to, right? Um, and also, selfishly, it's an opportunity for me to maybe even get even healthier. I mean, it's scary as all get out you know because as you say in the sense there was a, a fall from grace and that like you know uh there's a lot of shame that i felt around i talk about that in the book that i don't necessarily feel shameful for getting sick because i don't think that's helpful but i do feel shame for you know letting people down or, or feeling as though you know something as sacred as worship you you know you allowed your illness to to affect that i mean there's lots of shame that i've had to work through for that and lots of regret and lots of you know and one of the things um, I think that you touch on too is just the understanding that 
you know, your illness had a ripple effect. It impacted a community that was much bigger than you. Yeah, that's right. And um, and that is, I mean, I think that is the case with mental illnesses where we don't get to live our lives in a vacuum. It's not like I get to, you know, I may break my arm and it impacts me. Maybe if I'm playing on a team, it impacts the team. But mental health impacts are, are the people that we live in community with in That's a broader right. way. Yeah. Nobody lives in isolation. You know, I'm a systems-based thinker. And so I don't even think, you know, there's any mental health condition that is so, like, siloed off to a person. So I think it's so important to understand all the systems that a, that a person are, are a part of, right? Their family life, their faith life, their friends, like, everything. We're all, you know, everything I do, right, affects someone else. It's, it's, a, it's a lie to think that you exist on your own. It's just not the case, right? Um, which can be good and bad. This is another one of the lies of depression is that you think, so even in my instance, I think, okay, oh my gosh, you've had this ripple effect. You've, you've, you've hurt people or you let people down. You, you're that much worse, right? And, and you know, undeserving, and, 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 and right? So this, this happens a lot in family units where the person is, you know, the so-called identified patient or whatever it is, and they just think I'm just a drag on, uh, on everybody. And... Um, the converse is, is often the case. It's like, no, if you're a part of a community, right, then they, 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 they love you, right? right? And right. no matter what has happened there, right, there's always, again, we don't know what the future holds. We do know if we close ourselves off from the possibility, right, of healing. So if we shut it down and we say, oh, I'm not going to deal with this, I'm not going to talk about it, I'm not going to share, I'm not going to ask for help, then I can tell you what the outcome is probably going to be. But if you go the other way, right, yeah. More possibility. Absolutely. You know, one of the um, things that you address in the book head on is the spiritual aspect of mental health and how um, how Christians have responded to it, yeah. maybe in some unhealthy ways that yeah. have, um, you know, made it more difficult to have a conversation, in part in lack, I think, because of the information that we had. I mean, yeah. I think that mental health carries a long period of time where it was thought of as being like, a, you know, a, a sign of being possessed. Absolutely. Um, it's just a lot of misinformation. Um, but yeah. you really call the church to task. And I, I think that that's an important conversation that we need to have in our faith-based communities in terms of how we think about mental health and respond to it. Yeah. You want to talk about yeah. that? Yeah. You know, on one hand, I, I want to do it softly because it's not as though <sighs> I think in many cases Christian communities are doing the absolute best they can right when I think of most of the Christians right that I know they genuinely love God and, and love neighbor and they they're not necessarily setting out to try and to marginalize or to shame anyone who suffers right from, from mental health, and I want to make that very clear. At the same time, there's the weight of sort of human history, right, <laughs> against us that, that's already done all of this work of sort of like putting it over there um, as like, you can see how ancient this thinking is even in like the, the, the book of Job, if you remember the story, right, the, the, the man's life completely falls apart. And one of the questions the, the friends keep asking is, what sin have you committed that you haven't repented from, right? There's something in your life, right, that you're hiding and God is like, punishing you right until you like whatever right we have this sort of like ancient thinking oftentimes that when a person is suffering that it's somehow they've brought it up brought it upon themselves 
And, and so I've talked to many Christians who have said, right, when they've voiced their own struggles, they've gotten that kind of spiritual guidance, right, from, from a spiritual leader, which has made them further retreat from wanting to share because they don't want their, their faith to be judged or they don't want to be told, right, you did this yourself. We, so we've got to, like, communicate, right? If you're out there and you're thinking this way, no, like, no, no, no. That's not to say, and this is where sometimes um, the secular community can get uncomfortable. That's not to say that sin can't be a part of this, right? That we can't make things worse for ourselves, right? There are actions and things that we can do and take that don't promote our own our own wellness. But beginning from the place of this is like, you know, a spiritual malady, I don't think is, 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 is helpful. We want to see it from that bio psychosocial approach that I was talking about earlier. Now we do want to take into account though a person's spiritual life. This isn't this is important because to not do so is to not treat them in, in their totality. So so often so many times psychotherapists are uncomfortable with the person's spiritual life. And to do so is to do them a great disservice. Right? Because if their relationship to God is important to them or their faith community, we've that's got to be a, a, a part of the conversation. But back to the original question, the church itself has often been too judgmental in the sense of thinking that this issue is stemming from a place of, of sin or sort of a lack of piety or a, a lack of devotion or whatever it might be. And we've got to pull ourselves back from that and allow ourselves to have these conversations. We just need to educate ourselves, right? That's the place right now when I say like, look, I want people to be kind to themselves, the church can be kind to itself here. This is not something where it's like you need to come out and you need to be spanked, right? Let's just recognize, hey, we are supposed to be a place of healing, right? And that healing can take all forms, right? If, if, this is, if the gospel is true, then there's no kind of illness, there's no kind of problem that shouldn't be able to come to this place and find rest and find healing. And so part of what our work is, is to make that conversation okay in the church. To be able to raise your hand to say, I suffer from this, and this does, and that does not mean, right, that I somehow don't have faith in God, or that I am sort of, you know, rebelling, like in some way in my life. This is just what I have to deal with. And, you know, there's a guy named um, Matthew Stafford, who for a long time was at was at Baylor, but he's done a lot of great research on, on mental health and mental illness, you know, in the Christian community. I cite one of his studies where he wanted to know how many people in Christian communities had been diagnosed with um, some kind of mental illness, only to later be told by somebody in their Christian community that they didn't, in fact, have that diagnosis. So the, so, so the setup is someone is diagnosed, right? Right. And then they go and they maybe share within their Christian community. And they're like, no, that's not actually the case. What you, what you really need to do, right, is get your spiritual life in order. And the number is escaping me right now, but it was something like, it was in like the maybe the 40 to 50% range where, you know, his sample, this had happened to. And when you think about that, there's sort of no other kind of health issue where this happens, where Christian communities tell Christians that their doctors don't know what they're talking about, right? You don't really have leukemia, right? <laughs> what, you're just not praying You're just enough. not praying enough. That's not to say, my gosh, there's not a lot of wisdom to come from the church that, yes, maybe we should pray more. Yes, maybe we should read our Bibles more. Maybe we should be in worship more, all those sorts of things. 
all of that can still happen without trying to invalidate the expertise that we're getting. So the eye-opening uh, for me is that it's not either or. It's not no. either. Either this is you know you're you're suffering because your spiritual life isn't good enough. You're not you're not praying in the right way. You're not showing up to church enough, right? Right. It really is a partnership that that the church and the medical community should be working together to yes. help people yeah. because you've got the biological piece, but then you also have the spiritual life, which for somebody who is a believer. Is a can be a huge part of their um, of their journey to health. I love the way you put that. It's not either words and and and. When I was at the church, something that would often happen is people would come to me, and they would come when things were like really bad, you know, like the the drinking was really out of control, or they'd been depressed for a really long time, or whatever. And they would come and they would express this, and. Um, uh, you know, and they would want prayer, which is great and fantastic. I was happy to do it. And, and so often, though, I, I would say, well, hey, have you thought about, you know, going to talk to like a, you know, a professional? And I was shocked by the level of resistance to that within the Christian community. Because people would say, oh, that, well, it's not, it's not really that serious. Or, um, no, that's not something we do in our family. Or my family wouldn't approve. Or my spouse, like, you know, wouldn't understand. There was this sort of, like, this belief, I think, that if people went that far, that was somehow renouncing their faith. They felt like it was this either or. It's like, no, I need you, pastor, to pray for me, and I'll stay in church, and that's going to do it. But if I go over here and I and I surrender myself to inpatient treatment or medication or just regular counseling or just like an AA group or whatever, I'm somehow saying Jesus isn't enough for me. That's not the case. It's and, and, and. We are a complex universe unto ourselves, and we need a lot to be healthy, right, mm -hmm. and, to, and to be whole. And I believe that God has provided us all of the resources to, 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 to do just that. And God comes to us in these many different ways, right? So it's not just about, um, you know, Spiritual nourishment in the formal way is, is critical, right, to, to life, right? To, we, to, to worship and to be with others and to learn and journey with God. But also, we have to take care of ourselves in the same way that, like, if there's a tumor that needs to be excised out of my body, I allow the surgeon to, to, to do that. I don't just hope and pray that it will go away. I pray that it will go away, but I let the surgeon cut my body open and take out the tumor. And I also pray for the surgeon. And I going also to be taking pray it. for the surgeon. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's exactly right. So it's 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 and and and. Um, and 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 that's why I think these conversations are so important in the church. So I don't want people to, to suffer needlessly. If they're sitting there thinking that's that is turning my back on God. It's not. It is not. In fact, I'd say God wants you to seek out those resources that are here. God comes in so many different ways. I talked, I think I tell the story in the book about how even when I first started taking um, an antidepressant, I did so for the longest time. Um, I would keep the little pill bottle in my closet which is like not where I keep the other 
like medication, right? And it's like I would go in there, it's like, you know, do all this stuff and then go into my closet and take this little like pill and, and come out. And one day it dawned on me, I'm like, why, why do I do this? And it was like, this is like literally like closet drinking, but like uh, like closet medication. Like, I mean, you can't get more clear of like, a, oh my goodness, right? And it was like, oh, there's a part of me that's ashamed of this. That's what this is. Like even my wife who knows I'm taking this, like it's like, I don't want anyone to even like see me do this. And I'll never forget the day I took the, the, the little antidepressant and I put it where the rest of my medication is. And in my mind, that was a shift from, I'm ashamed of this, to I accept this as a resource that God has, has given me, and this is important to my health, and I'm not ashamed of taking this. This is part of my wellness. It's just a piece. It's a piece of the puzzle, and whether I feel great about that some days or not great about that other days, it is what it is. You know, I'm not ashamed. Ryan, your stories are so powerful, and I just I want to thank you for sharing your life. Um, and not only that, but also making resources available. You do a great job in the book of outlining different types of therapy, different types of help. I mean, you're, the book is it, it is a, it is a personal journey alongside with you, but it's also an incredible resource. And, and thank you for that. I think this is so important, especially right now. Well, thanks for saying that. Yeah, and I really hope that the readers will will find out. It's um, I tell some of my own story, but I really want to open the conversation and really point people in the direction where they can find help. And so it's, um, I hope it's really accessible and practical for people answering some of these basic questions about how do I know if I'm depressed? What do I do if uh, a friend is, is suicidal? What's the difference between a psychiatrist and a psychologist? You know, give me some examples of these unhealthy thinking patterns, all those things. I really hope that people and you also research. tackle big questions like, why does God allow mental illness yeah, 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 to exist? Yeah. I mean, I love it. You really yeah. don't shy away. Um, what is your website? People want to learn more information. Where do they go to find out about the book? Yeah, to find out about the book, go to thingswedontwanttalkabout.com. Um, you can pre-order the book right now. Um, it's going to be available everywhere January 5th. So you can obviously, you can log on to, if you go to thingswedontwanttalkabout.com, it'll show you all the all the vendors that you can purchase from. You can pre-order. There's a book trailer that we just put up um, uh, for the book. Obviously, you can go to Amazon. Um, and you're also on social media. I'm also on social media. So you can find me. It's my Everything is my full name, Ryan Casey Waller. So Instagram and Facebook are where I'm the most active. Uh, there is ryancaseywaller.com. Um but yeah, so if you go to social media, that's the kind of quickest way to, to access probably what I'm up to. So. Thank you so much for taking time to be with us today. It's been, it's been great to visit with you. Likewise. Thank you. Thanks.